0: Welcome to Inside the Banjoverse, exploring the minds of folk music's great artists. If you love the stories behind bluegrass, Irish, folk and Americana, then this podcast is for you. This is Enda Scal from Irish bluegrass crossover band Wee Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry, there's actually four of us, and mostly just one banjo. That's me. Ross Holmes is an American violinist originally from Fort Worth, Texas, now resident in Nashville. A great friend of Wee Banjo 3, Ross has worked with some huge bands such as Mumford & Sons, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Bruce Hornsby and the Noisemakers, and quite famously as founding member of progressive bluegrass group Cadillac Sky. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ross Holmes. That's so good. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot when you're not warmed up. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, it's 11 o'clock in the morning in Nashville, Tennessee, and it is 5 o'clock in the afternoon here in
1: Galway. It's great to see you, Ross. You too, and uh, I'm I'm jealous. It's breakfast time here and pub time there, so <laughs> the you've got the are, advantage. Pubs are closed, man. <laughs> I know, but the spirit—you can still pour yourself a pint, and it's acceptable. I have to uh, endure the coffee
0: right now. <laughs> oh, so that's great. So you're 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 living in Nashville. You're
1: originally from Texas. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Ross. Yeah, so I uh, was born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, which is. Um, North Texas, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, for those who follow Irish music, the North Texas Irish Fest is uh, one of the larger ones in the States. Uh, I grew up going to that festival, watching bands play, and hoping someday to perform. And So that's, that's the northern part of Texas, and then I moved to uh, Nashville about a decade ago, although I had been working up here for many, many years prior to that. Um, finally, uh, the, the move was uh, justified because I was spending so much time in Recording session land up here and a couple of the bands that I was involved with were based here or loosely based here. And it's also Music City America. I mean, it's the it's the place to be if you're trying to do what we do. There are wonderful music cities, Chicago, Austin, New York, L.A., but there's no city that really... Uh, Truly encompasses the spirit of the music industry, as well as the range of artists, not just country artists, as people think of Nashville, but Americana, folk, jazz, classical music. They all kind of find their way here uh, eventually. And so Nashville, I don't know, you spent some time here. You know the vibe. It's a special place.
0: It is. It's a pretty understated city in comparison to Chicago or New York or Austin, as you mentioned. But the music is is, is fabulous. It's incredible. incredible. Incredibly, and we've made, made made some great friends there over the years, including yourself. But <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to say the the first time that I met you, I if I'm correct in saying this was actually backstage after Mumford and Sons' gig in Galway quite a while ago. So you to, you toured with Mumford and Sons for a while. You were friendly with Martin Howley from We Banjo Three. Yeah, uh, you had met Martin in Nashville at the Opry when Martin was playing with a band that. Uh, i used to play with
1: <laughs> so it's all that's quite complicated that's right okay yeah sorry i'm trying to piece it together so it was Front mcguire band but was it gary and Barrow that was playing banjo then no it was martin it, oh it was martin but wasn't wait when did gary come out because i met him another time too then, all these banjo players yeah yeah so the band <laughs> would have
0: come back through and with gary had replaced martin in the band martin filled in for me when my son, uh, my wife was pregnant, and uh, right on that on that one tour,
1: we had just come from Texas, actually. That's right. right. So would that been two thousand eleven? Maybe uh, that would have been two thousand and nine. Two thousand nine. Oh yeah. my gosh. Wow, it's, <laughs> Dude, the, the years of all this are, are just, it's incredible to try to piece together. But yeah, so I guess it it would have been um, the uh, stopover festival that we did in Galway at the Salt Hill, Salt Air. It was in Salt Hill, yeah, yeah. That was, Salt uh, Hill, yeah. That was the at the Road Fest, yeah. What was that like? Yeah. And man, so the, the, I was with Mumford & Sons uh, 2010 through 14, and it was it was an amazing experience i i came into the band um i was in a bluegrass band for a long time called cadillac sky which is a very progressive what started out as a a, a more i don't want to say traditional bluegrass band but leaning towards the traditional side um what started out as that sound with with cadillac sky eventually became basically a rock and roll band with bluegrass instruments But at some point in our journey, uh, when Mumford & Sons was just getting going and they were discovering Americana music, Cadillac Sky and Old Crow Medicine Show were the two bands that had somewhat of a presence in England, and they were turned on to, to those two projects. And um, we met and toured with them, and then as soon as Cadillac Sky ended, I made my little shift over to Mumford & Sons, and it was right as their first record, Sino More, was... <laughs> Taking off, uh, I think they had had two singles at the time. They had had uh, "Little Lion Man" and, and "The Cave" had just come out, or it was the other way around. It gets lost in my head, but uh, they were they were starting their sort of meteoric rise when I slipped into the fold and um, then was with them as they as they blasted to the to the top of their genre, the top of the field. And man, it was it was incredible to go from my band playing you know, two to three thousand seat venues. And that was about the same size as Mumford and Sons was playing to headlining Glastonbury festival for 200,000 people all within the span of a few years. Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's an amazing thing to be a part of. It's an amazing thing to witness. Um, I, what, what doesn't happen though, is it doesn't make you a better player. It doesn't make you um, a, a better human. it just, amplifies everything you're just tweaked out all the time because of the lights and the energy and the and the scope of everything it's just amplified uh, and when I when I left Mumford in 2014 and began my time with Bruce Hornsby I, I went from the rush of playing these big festivals and arenas to getting back to the nature of what it is that I love so much which was just playing and truly playing truly improvising and living in in a uh Holy musical environment versus a holy lights and flash and pyrotechnics environment, mm. and it's not diminishing the music of Mumford because it's powerful stuff. I, I they're those guys are family, literally, and uh, I, I, I'm so grateful for the time. But for those of us that are players and really have invested our focus and energy into um, our craft, you know, moments like that are a treat to play to play big gigs. But I'd much rather invest my time into. an audience that wants to listen, an audience that's there to focus on this craft that I've poured so much of my time into. That's, Uh, that's really
0: interesting because a lot of people would assume that if you had a gig like Mumford and Sons, you would just sit back, uh, you know, watch the paycheck roll in every week and kind of enjoy the, the buzz of playing with such a huge band, but there's, there's more music
1: that you're seeking. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's um, it's 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 an interesting experience to be around people that are very successful in music because all the trappings come with it. You have uh, well zero anonymity anymore. Everywhere you go, you're recognized by people and. Um, Every, uh, you know, anything you could ever want, whether it's an instrument or recording equipment or a big home or a fancy car, all that stuff just kind of happens as a result of that success. And over time, I think what happens to a lot of people is that they become very accustomed to that. And I'm not saying this about Mumford because those guys work incredibly hard to this day. But there are many people that we've all met that you go, oh, you, you're just cruising. There's no... Um, that youthful desire to really uh, march forward in your career and take huge strides with your progress and your your growth as a as a player, as a singer, as a composer, a lyricist, those things kind of settle back when all those um, luxurious things start creeping in. At least that's been my observation of it, um, and. I just I never want to settle at any level of ability. I want to continue to grow as a player and search for new sounds and, and um new outlets for what the fiddle with the violin can do, how it can contribute. I love that quote. There's the famous um, cellist Pablo Casals, who in his nineties was asked why he still practiced hours a day, and he said, I feel like I'm getting better. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it's a it's an amazingly personal yeah. and heartfelt statement that i i really i get that so much and so for me that was an amazing chapter but i was missing you know when when in that band there, there's no uh, with mumford there was no improvising you know with we banjo three you guys get up and there are spots where everyone solos and in the process of soloing you're playing something that you didn't play the night before it's a new idea largely based on the energy of the band and the energy of the audience um But in Mumford, the songs were very arranged and they were set in place. And so there was no room for soloing or improvising. And I was really, really missing that Mm -hmm. um, from a performance standpoint. Now, the rest of my time outside of that band during those years, I was really involved um, in the recording session scene here in Nashville, playing on big projects with artists. But even then, it's not playing... um, playing solos under a microphone in a recording studio, a little isolation booth is vastly different than improvising a solo that you can't take back (laughs) in front of an audience. (laughs) You know, we can punch in a solo even here with Skype. If, if something happens, a technological glitch, we can cut it, crop it, edit it and make it look seamless in live setting. You have to trust your hands. You have to trust your ears. You have to trust your heart. And that rush, that is to me is the essence of, of, being a musician, and it doesn't matter if you're doing it in front of a million people or your grandma, that still should be felt if you're really connecting with the heart and soul of what it is that you're trying to say through your instruments. And it's it's powerful.
0: Does it always work? I mean, I know from my point of view, there's nights, most nights you come off stage and you're, you know, and, and it depends on such a number of factors like energy and the audience and everything. What do you do with those nights where you've just had a car crash and everything you've played is awful? <laughs> or do you even have those kind of nights?
1: I oh, I certainly do. And it's scalable. Um, you know I, I and what I mean by scalable is that I think that as you progress as a musician, you you recognize your level of ability and what you're able to accomplish uh, in performance through your instrument or singing. And the nights that um, you don't nail it, I guess I grew up playing baseball. it's I, I love it so much, and I know it's not really a deal and in Ireland, but everybody knows baseball. Everybody knows the New York Yankees and the L.A. Dodgers. Um, but there's, a, there's an old saying that my, my coach told me because I was, I would spend hours, you know, practicing my swing and trying to connect bat and ball every time I got to the plate. But as he said, you, nobody can bat a thousand, meaning nobody can bat, can hit the ball every single time they get up to the plate. You might strike out, you might hit a pop fly, you're gonna get out sometimes. You're not always gonna land on a base. And it's the same thing with shows. You can't you can't bet a thousand, you can't expect that every gig that you play is going to be perfect. Uh, I w- would venture a guess, and I, I don't know this as fact, but I, I would venture a guess that most artists in any field, whether it's music, or painting, or poetry, um, at some point, when you're working on something, whether it's a performance or a painting or a poem, you recognize, look, I'm making a contribution. It's positive. It's it's a step forward. It's not my best work. I've got to go on to the next thing. I've got to get on to the next gig tomorrow night. I've got to get on to the next painting that I'll start next week. I've got to get on to the next poem because better words will come. And so you accept it for what it is, and hopefully you have a, enough... Um, personal insight to reflect back and see where you can improve uh and then take take that information that knowledge and then build upon it for the next show and for me at least i found that um as i've progressed through life in this career my uh tendencies for having uh okay shows uh though that might have been a 40 to 60 percent ratio are now probably at a for every 10 gigs I play, I'm going to have seven or eight great gigs and a couple, two, three that are so-so. Maybe it's audience energy. Maybe it's sound issues. Maybe it's just I just am not in sync with my hands, whatever it is. But I accept it and I don't certainly don't dwell on it because that just causes me to be depressed and I hmm. would rather not exist. So uh, so how, how do you cope then with, uh, we'll say, in-ear monitors or
0: on-stage monitors, loud? Bruce Hornsby famously is loud. Yeah. Uh, does that affect you? I know that it affects me enormously. My favorite setup is a really nice microphone, uh, a, a, a really nice monitor and a relatively quiet concert and preferably sitting down. And then I can hear and feel everything perfectly. But there's a compromise to be made. So we play with in-ear monitors, which is largely like listening to your banjo through a phone that somebody has rang you from Bangladesh. Um, yeah. <laughs> a huge compromise to be made. It and sometimes it's a real struggle. Is that easier with the fiddle? I mean, you
1: haven't played my banjo, so I can't compare exactly. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I know it's a fantastic banjo. Um, you know, I, there's a very interesting disconnect. My, I, too, my favorite setup uh, is performing into a microphone with a small monitor and fairly quiet stage volume. Because more than anything, I want to hear the actual sound of my violin. There's a the deal that happens with fiddle where when I'm playing... The instrument is physically connected to to my head, and particularly my left ear. Um, I, I feel the vibrations of the strings in the box going through my jaw. And when things are out of tune, it's like my inner ear moves differently than when I'm playing in tune, and I can hear properly. Everything is like moves seamlessly. When things are off, I, I feel this weird jolting vibration that happens and it's um it's it's frustrating it's um using in-ear monitors closes off that natural sound of the instrument and Mm -hmm. and it's this weird irony because really nice in-ear monitors allow you to hear clearly and they they do a good job of representing the tone of your instrument although the instrument's plugged in that's another thing to contend with versus the natural tone it's weird to have this clear sound coming in my ear but it literally, my instrument being inches away from what I'm hearing, uh, going through all this technology, packs and receivers and transmitters. And it's, so for me, I made the decision a couple of years ago when I um, started playing with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band that I would stop using in-ear monitors. And it it really helped my comfort level again with my violin and finding that a better place. That's one of the reasons why my, Cons- the consistency of better shows has increased for me is that I, I am back to playing on a wedge. The danger, though, is playing with a six-piece band with electric bass and drums and keyboard and, the you know, amps everywhere. It's a fucking nightmare. Um, <laughs> is that it does get really loud on stage, and you have to contend with um, the, the risk and danger of being pummeled by all that loud stage volume. So I, I don't always, because... Sometimes I forget. But I, I have instead of in-ear monitors, I use the in-ear um, molds that are just for sound killing. So it knocks down the stage volume. I think the pair that I have uh, knocks it down 15 decibels. So I'll put one in my right ear, leave my left ear open. I still hear the stage. It kills a bit of that top end blast. Uh, and it seems to work well for me. But there's no substitute for sitting or even standing. Uh, but playing on a microphone with a wedge and really hearing the the acoustics of a space and hearing the nature of your instrument, you just connect so much more with that. It's mm. um, But it's impossible to do that when you're playing big festivals like you guys are doing. You know, Kansas City, you're playing for tens and tens of thousands of people and you can't just play on a microphone. No. You have to plug in.
0: And when you move around, what, what, what used to happen to me particularly when we were we had monitors is that I'd be standing in front of my monitor, which was banjo heavy and I was in yeah. banjo heaven. And if I moved over to the other side of the stage, <laughs> then there was like, lads, you have no banjo at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I've entered the dead zone. I'm just I've got to go back over to my own side now.
1: <laughs> so when you're performing, are you wired in or are you wireless? We're wireless. Yeah, so we're yeah. wireless instruments, wireless ears, we can run around all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it really convenient. And of course, you know, the technology now with wireless packs, you can have a very small rig and com- complete accuracy. There's no like latency or impedance yeah. of tone. You know, it's really fantastic. But that's the problem when you're playing uh, on wedges with wireless and you journey over to your bandmates to, you know, tell a joke or interact for a part of a song and you go, wait, you don't have any <laughs> fiddle in your wedge. You selfish bastard. <laughs> oh yeah. Listen, take us, right, take us,
0: take us right back to the, to the early days. What, what attracted you to the fiddle and what music did you start playing?
1: So, uh, grown up in Texas, I'm my, gonna, I'm uh, going
0: to, I'm going uh, to segue from this into your album because I have a feeling that oh, okay. the title of it is, is linked. So yeah, absolutely. Take us on the journey.
1: Um, my mom's dad, my my granddad, uh, was a doctor in Fort Worth, where I grew up, and lived with us uh, when he once he retired, he moved in with us. Um, and his besides practicing medicine, his real love in life was the fiddle, and it goes back generations in our family. I think it was my either two great grandfathers or three great 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 grandfather. Um, they th- that side of the family lived in Nebraska, in the heartland of America. They were they were from Ireland. They were from County Clare, and they moved over in the mid 1800s, and grew corn and they grew uh, wheat and soybeans and they grew uh, hemp plants. Although they didn't realize the smoking potential of it, <laughs> they grew hemp and they you you know they all this stuff was for mass uh, agriculture for. Uh, Feedlots and for the U.S. military, just surplus big stuff. And uh, at some point in time, with one of those grandfathers that was back there, um, their their farm in, in Nebraska was a uh, the, the Oregon Trail, the famous trail that went to the West Coast, crossed their property. And at some point, somebody traded. Uh, one of my ancestors some work or some food for a fiddle. And the fiddle has remained in our family for generations. And it's this—it's one of those stories that you read about and you go, oh, that's totally fiction. No, my sister has the fiddle. And the old newspaper clippings from like the 19-teens and 1920s when little local newspapers would write about this fiddle that my, my, my grandfather and my great-grandfather would play at dances out for the farmers. Anyway. Um, World War II happened. He moved to Texas, became a prominent figure uh, in town with his medical practice. And that was his focus. And but when he wasn't doing medicine, he was playing the fiddle. And that was his he just he loved it. And uh, of course, growing up around that, uh, you know, he would he would leave his fiddle out and sit down and play piano or grab his grab his fiddle and play tunes on the porch. And My sister, who's three years younger than I am, um, when she was five, she told my mom that she wanted to play that violin that you could clap your hands and stomp your feet to. And immediately, my granddad was like, I know what to do with this one. And so he got her a little fiddle, and she started taking lessons. And it was a year later. uh, She was six. I would have been nine at the time. I had been watching. I guess I had just been watching her learn the fundamentals of how to hold the instrument, how to play twinkle, twinkle, little star. And of course I had been watching my grandfather and I walked into her. This memory is still so clear today as it was when it happened. I walked into her room. Her fiddle was sitting on her little twin size bed in its case. Case was open. I got the fiddle out and I just started to play. I started to play twinkle, twinkle, little star. I started to play some scales that I had heard and I started to play the old fiddle tune, boil the cabbage. And I remember looking up as my mom and grandfather entered the room, and they said, "Katie, you've never sounded but ba- wow, Ross." <laughs> and I started. We borrowed a friend's uh, small fiddle, and I started lessons a week later, and that was that. Um, and so we we didn't go the the route of classical violin studies, which is most common for kids living in a city, you know, you start with the Suzuki violin method or one of those variants. We went straight into fiddling proper Texas contest style fiddling, which would be the equivalent, the Texas equivalent of the traditional Irish music that you'd have for the, the all Ireland championships, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so our Texas equivalent of that. And that tune that I played at the top is the most common Texas style breakdown. Sally Gooden. Um, and so that that was really where Katie and I both began with fiddling, um, in that specific genre, and then quickly branched off our interests in jazz and western swing and and Cajun music and Celtic music. Uh, all kind of happened at that exact same time because my my parents and my my grandfather they loved all all of the genres of music and were. Play it throughout the house all the time, so it was just natural to pick up the fiddle and play along with the Chieftains live at the Belfast Opera House, featuring Roger Waters and Nancy Griffith. You know that the albums like that that were just part of our growing up, and so our interests, uh, mine in particular, my interests and all the different genres started. Those ideas infused themselves into my playing at a very Mm -hmm. early age, and then it was when I was a teenager that I started. Uh, not studying classical violin but taking lessons from a classical violinist mostly for technique and posture, dex, building dexterity around the fingerboard, understanding music theory, ideas of composition. And um, that has led to this whole journey. I, I realized probably earlier than I even remember, but I, I remember being about 15, 16 years old going, this I. I think this is what I have to do with my life. Um, I probably had come to that conclusion before then, but Mm. just didn't recognize that. And, and, and here we are. And so, yeah, I, and so that, that that leads, that leads neatly
0: onto your solo album, which
1: was that that last year that you brought that out? That came out in 2018. Yeah. October
0: 23rd of 2018. Time has lost all meaning in the last couple of months, Ross.
1: It has lost, (laughs) it has lost all meaning. uh, (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I, the, the date was important for me to put it out, October 23rd, because that was my grandfather's birthday, and he would have been 98 that year. But, um, but I, ne- I needed to put it out on his birthday because he was the force behind why I do what I do. Uh, for good or bad, for the triumphs in my life and the moments of just absolute pain and suffering, I can thank him for that because of the fiddle. So, <laughs> um, it's a, the, the album is called Not Very Good at Winning. Uh, because <laughs> as a kid growing up playing in fiddle contests, those were my opportunities to perform. It was nice to win some money and take home a trophy, but for me, it was it was getting on stage and playing with some accompanists, where I could perform these ideas that I had been shedding, you know, for the weeks leading up to the contest. And more than anything, it just gave me an opportunity to improvise in front of people, and so absolutely there were times when i might have been the best fiddle player by a country mile playing in the contest but i totally abandoned the rules and abandoned you know the sensible thing to try to win and i might get fourth or fifth place you know win 15 bucks and slap on the back from one of the judges you know try harder next time and i'm going I just kicked everybody's <laughs> ass. What are you talking about? But it didn't conform to the rules of the um, fiddle contest. Yeah. And that became sort of my my M.O. as I went through contests and, and did that whole thing. Um, but a few years back when I started um, – when when I had enough time to really invest into a lot of these solo projects that I've had shelved for years because of my investment into other bands and other artists, when I finally said, it's time for me to start pursuing these – I've evaluated where I needed to begin. And I kept coming back to the notion of putting out that an, an album of Texas fiddle contest style tunes because it's the genesis of my playing. It's the, the origin story of where I'm at now, why I do what I do all comes from those lessons, those tunes. It's the the foundation of it. Yeah. Um, and though it's not the world that I live in now as a player, it's still very comfortable for me to. It's just. It's like your mom's chicken noodle soup. You know, just nobody's chicken noodle soup is better than mom's. And that's that's just the thing with these fiddle tunes. Is, I don't. I don't live in them. I don't play in contests. I don't do that world anymore. But, when I just sit down and I start playing, inevitably I, play an old Texas contest style fiddle tune. It's just my. It's my warm blanket. It's my chicken noodle mm, soup. That's um, wonderful. And I love it. Yeah.
0: So you have a a new project launching in June. Do you want to tell us about that?
1: Yes. So uh, after I um, released Not Very Good at Winning the Contest album, I shifted all my focus into two separate projects. One is a big lyrical album, which has now been stalled because who can go in the recording studio (laughs) and record? But uh, the other project that has commanded most of my focus is is a large work for solo, fiddle, and orchestra called the American Fiddle Suite. It's a 13-movement work that uh, originally started, um, and this is kind of cool, for several years now, I'd say about three years, uh, on social media, particularly Instagram, um, I have shared by and large, though I'll play the occasional fiddle cover tune, 95% of the material that I post in terms of videos are melodies that I've written. And a lot of these melodies, I won't say which ones, um, but a lot of these melodies and themes have become a part of or were taken from this larger work of the American Fiddle Suite. And I've kind of dropped them out there as little Easter eggs along the way. And um, as I'm working with a collaborator in Washington, D.C., Aaron Malone, who's this brilliant fiddle player, a brilliant composer and in the early stages uh, in 2018 of us working on this American fiddle suite, I started taking some of these themes and compiling them into medleys, mostly for the sake of just remembering the, the melodies. Uh, I found it easy to do inside of a melody because a transition might trigger a thought about going to this particular idea, whatever it was. And it be, what started out as a couple little themes became a 15-minute... Through composed work um, that's not written. This the um, this particular piece is not written, but it became what um, what I've called the overture, the solo violin overture to the American Fiddle Suite. Mm. And living through this time that we're in right now with coronavirus, COVID nineteen, and and isolation, and really at this point watching this nasty vitriolic um, nature of political partisanship and just the world just feels like it's being yanked apart in many ways. Um, It kind of hit me a a little while back about a month ago in this process. Um, I I woke up one day thinking about the true spirit of this piece is inclusivity and bringing together uh, genres of music, styles of music, um, and the the larger idea of that being bringing together uh, people. And though this is this piece that I'm releasing in June, the overture to the American uh, fiddle suite is for a solo instrument, it's the spirit of it is what matters the most to me personally and that is, as I said a second ago, inclusivity um, embracing the beauty of all of all of our cultures, all of our outlooks on life whether we agree with them or not uh, they exist and we have to recognize that mm-hmm. you know we're, we're human beings and our our experiences in life are singular to each one of us um so i'm really excited about this piece coming out in june it's um more than anything i kind of shocked myself i I had a recording session at um a very well-known studio i i I think you guys have been there oceanway studio here in nashville it's um it's this beautiful old church that was converted many years ago into a um major recording studio here in town and i had a session in the morning and then there was a big session one afternoon this was um, I recorded this June 10th of 2018 and I asked the engineer I said look I have this piece you've got some mics set up can can I just we got he said we got 30 minutes if you want to try to record this thing how long is it I said it's 15 minutes he said well you're going to have one chance to get this right and I was just thinking I would I would do a pass and then have it for reference as far as practice and revisiting it so I could refine the ideas I didn't expect to to sit down and 15 minutes later have the exact recording that I'm putting out in June. There's no overdub, there's no punch in, it's all just one pass and I don't know how or why I w- managed to catch lightning in a bottle that day, but, but I did and I'm incredibly proud of the recording and my performance of it, of this piece. Um, but again, beyond that, I I'm I'm excited about sharing a work that uh, focuses on just the spirit of, of of people and bringing people together. So awesome. So where can where can people find that one? It's it's coming out in June. How do they follow? Yeah. So you could you can follow me on social media. Uh, Ross Holmes fiddle on Instagram. Uh, Real Ross Holmes on Twitter. Although I don't really tweet much. I just. I hate it. Uh, Facebook, I'm pretty shit at, but you can find me there too. <laughs> Ross Holmes Fiddle, I think. Um, but it will be on all the streaming services. There's no point right now in pressing copies of any of this because who's going out to buy at shows? And really, I think it's responsible of everybody to to uh, save, save their bucks because who knows when we'll be working again. Yeah. That actually – sorry, not to tangent, but that has – I was in this discussion the other day, and I'd love to get your thought on this because it's really important – You, uh, with with We Banjo 3, you guys um, are incredibly known in in that scene and are one of the biggest, most happening bands on the planet uh, to represent Ireland. I know that you guys do uh, struggle, as all of us do, with the, the conflict of streaming services, where you don't make hardly any money off of royalties, versus... Sales at shows where people buy your merch, they buy your album, they buy your T-shirts, your swag. Mm.
2: Um,
1: do you think that as we're going through this process, and you know more than ever, people are turning to streaming services just for an escape, listening to the music. We we have to have an outlet for that. Um, do you think that it's important as artists that we maybe consider limiting what music is available on streaming and directing people to actual hard copy sales or buying digital copies mm. as a way for us to uh, earn a living or is it more important to be available and out there for people to discover to bring a bit of light it's it's an interesting thought both sides what do you it think
0: is, yeah if we feel that streaming services are kind of a necessary evil in that it, it's kind of the that old chestnut of exposure but what i mean our our experience with we Banjo three fans is that they've been incredibly supportive, especially in this lockdown and have bought tons of t-shirts and wow. hard copy CDs and vinyl and all sorts of stuff from our website. And it's been fantastic. And we've never had an issue selling stuff at gigs. I mean, fans are just so generous. They just buy and buy and buy streaming services. Funnily enough, in the Irish context, it's not a huge market. So a lot of the, the very traditional Irish bands, a lot of them aren't on Spotify or similar services. And if they yeah. are, the, the play numbers are low, like they're, they're nothing compared to even a bluegrass or Americana um, by play numbers. So it's an interesting market in itself, even just to look at it from that point of view. Now, the algorithm constantly places us with other Irish, other Irish bands that don't have huge uh, stream numbers. Yeah, we've been and this is kind of the benefit of the Spotify model is that some of our songs have been included on big, big, big folk playlists. Those playlists have driven our streaming numbers into the millions, where naturally by the algorithm, they probably wouldn't have got anywhere near that. As you said, it still doesn't pay an enormous amount of money, and it's always going to be way better if someone goes and downloads your album from iTunes or physically buys
1: a CD. I mean, I don't even have a CD player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, my computer doesn't. My my. Well, Sarah's car doesn't. Yeah. I mean, it's. But without it's a doubt, I, really-
0: I have and and in the lockdown, I have bought many albums on iTunes and I bought tracks on iTunes. If there's something that I love, I'll buy it. And it's, yeah. it's only ninety nine cent. I mean, I often paid five bucks for a terrible cup of coffee at Starbucks.
1: <laughs> exactly yeah we're, we're very quick to to stop in and get a cup of coffee that's gone versus 99 cents where we go mm, but i could stream it for free yeah and it's it's this weird conflict and um yeah i find it amazing that the last several years vinyl has outsold cds mm-hmm. by by many factors and it's an incredible thing that this old technology vinyl has been around for decades mm. decades it's making this resurgence funny enough at the same time i keep reading about how all these folks are starting to renovate and invest in these drive-in movie theaters cuz who wants to go sit in a movie theater now with all these folks That's right. you know with covid-19 so the idea of going back to this old technology is pretty interesting it keeps people engaged it keeps people moving and feeling human uh, all while doing so safely. And, uh, you know, we you can you can put on a, a vinyl record. The, the experience of putting a vinyl onto a player and setting the needle and listening through good speakers is, it's fulfilling. It's not the same thing as going to a live gig, but it's maybe the next closest thing. Mm,
0: there's a ritual you know? to it. It's a bit like making your own coffee at home. If you grind your beans and do the whole AeroPress thing, there's a ritual that's much better than... Just go in and get a takeaway cup, and it's drank and
1: it's gone, you know. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, hopefully we'll see we'll see uh, the trend of that uh, af- affect us all positively, and and be able to as musicians benefit in, in whatever way or ways uh, come from that positively, yeah. you know. Is there it's just another, an
0: interesting time. Have you have you warmed up enough for a
1: a final tune, Ross? Will you play us out? <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, I'm going to play a tune that. Uh, your bandmate, Fergal Scahill, taught me uh, it's one of my favorite Irish tunes, and I, I don't pretend to be an Irish player at all, but I love it so much. It's The Flooded Roads of Glenties, and he uh, I heard it off of, shoot, I can't even, Wayfarer, I think, was the record that it was on. Mm. And I, it just killed me when I heard it. I was just, oh, dude, that's you're just so salty. Oh, and so he showed it to me at a festival a long time ago. And uh, Man, thanks so much for having me. I, I really pleasure. appreciate your time. And this has been so great. I miss all you guys and can't wait until we uh, are on stage jamming again for the people. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Russ. Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please head over to our website, webanjo 3com to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time, Inside the Banjo art.